0: Dear, dear listener. Hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcast it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Hey everyone, we are ready to go and dive even deeper into this conversation with Andrew Holacek as we continue to explore this massive part of our lives, which normally we are not aware of. And there's so much power and creativity and genius in our unconscious selves. We can meet God in these states and bring it back into the rest of our lives. So let's keep going, God bless. Welcome to Deep Transformation,
1: So many implications. (laughs) that Let's start with just one. What is this about our identity? Who and what we are?
2: Yeah, idem, identity comes, uh, identity comes from idem, meaning over and over. Identity is a construct, and, and again, you intimated this earlier, Roger, identity exists along a spectrum, both XY axis, right? Dualistic, not dualistic, a spectrum of both development, spiritually and development psychologically. And so what it it says about our identity, and let me pause and ask you perhaps to say just a tad bit more, because I want to be a little bit more specific in my response. What is seeding this question for you? and, And where do you want to run with this? Because (laughs) Again, there's so many ways to go with this. I'm just going to pause before I I launch into my thing.
1: Well, it's deliberately an open question. So I invite you to go wherever you think would be most intriguing. Maybe I'll just add something about, we've been using the word emptiness, and that's a kind of, it's it's a tough word and concept to wrap one's head around, to put it mildly. And so let me just say something very simple. And that is, when using your book, Dreams of Light, as I did in, in the retreat, What I came to see more deeply was that if we really look very closely at our experience, it turns out that the nature of our experience and thereby the nature of reality just is quite different from what we usually assume. And it's, as you point out, when you go really deep into your waking experience, it has this curious thing of becoming kind of almost more dreamlike. It's, yes. a, it's like, whoa, it's not as solid or as, or as easily grasped or conceptualized or fixated as, as I thought. Yes. And it's that our experience and reality is only appears as solid and unchanging and fixed and easily understood and conceptualized because we don't look closely
2: enough. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. And and, and and Tranga Rinpoche, one of my main teachers who put me in my three-year retreat, said something very compelling here, uh, Roger, where he said, you know, discovering the empty nature of things is actually not that difficult. We just have to look. And most of us are actually afraid to pull the curtain back, Wizard of Oz. Most of us are actually afraid. And so let me say it again, return this to this this issue of identity, how identity is a construct and how therefore it can be deconstructed and how our, our sense of identity is really the source of all our suffering and how this practice can lead one to it. And so I invite, again, I, I'm going to say the following because I want to become, want to convey this material in as practical a way as I possibly can. So it just doesn't come across as Theory, philosophy, highfalutin, whatever. It's really interesting. I I resonate more and more with what the Buddha allegedly said. I teach one thing and one thing only: suffering and the end of suffering. And so everything I do, I don't get me wrong, I love philosophy, I love science, I love so-called theory, but everything is in the service of the alleviation of suffering and discovering what reality actually is and so with that in mind i invite readers or listeners to take a close look when we look at this thing called identity several several incredibly compelling things happen and one of which is that we we don't see the world we don't see things the way they are we see things the way we are and so the reason we see the world in the solid elastic lasting dualistic way, what I call the unholy trinity, the reason we reify it is because we have, my languaging, this kind of King Midas approach. Everything we do, everything we touch with our sense faculties and mind is considered the sixth sense in Buddhism. Everything we touch with our senses turns into our version of gold, i.e. ego's version of gold. That's the identity that we're most exclusively identified with. That's what actually ego is, Roger. Ego is, and you know this, exclusive identification with form. That's what ego is. And so what we do in in, in a completely uh, unwitting, non-lucid way, this is the deeper rendering of non-lucidity, we constantly project, plaster in our image the qualities inherent within our self-sense. And so we don't see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. And I discovered this very brilliantly, very painfully poignantly in my three-year retreat where the first three months since why I wrote my first book power and pain first three months of that retreat Roger were unbelievably difficult I mean I I had never gone through such pain I I was just like in, in so much anguish and then and I I started reflecting you'll see how this all ties in after a couple months it was like why is this so hard why is it so hard for me to just sit and work with my mind for 16 hours every single day. And then I realized several things. One is I realized, hey, I'm in a detox center here. I'm detoxifying from my addiction to form, to my addiction to movement. And therefore, I realized the retreat wasn't hard. I was. My world isn't hard. I am. And so what we do, and this is how how it ties in to the whole dream yoga emptiness thing. The world, in essence, is empty. Permeable, dreamlike, fluid, malleable, whatever, whatever term you want to append to that which cannot be appended. We are the ones, principally out of fear, that freeze this world into concrete and steel and then bitch about why it's so hard. I mean, what a pisser. We're the ones that are always pinching ourselves, and pardon the play on words. We're the ones that are pinching ourselves and always looking for the prick. We're the prick. The world isn't hard we are. And so how this relates to identity is that when I, again, this, this is where I want to get practical with it. What this practice has done, what what dream yoga has done in conjunction with my other meditations in the practice of illusory form that you were talking about is if I pay exquisite attention to my experience, Roger, I will notice that there, there is these rapid, rapid, constant levels of contraction that are always taking place. And these contractions really fundamentally, moment to moment, they pull me away from reality. They pull me away from the de-reified, empty, dreamlike, non-dual experience where there's no room for personal identity. Ego doesn't fit in this world. And so through this really strange process of kind of psychological echolocation, I I think this is so interesting. You know what echolocation is, right? So whales and bats and whatnot will always, they'll be pinging out sound waves and whatnot out against whatever is out there as a way to gather information about what's out there well what i argue is what ego does this this arrested form of identity is it's pinging out in a type of echolocation onto a seemingly external world as a way to create a sense of self in relationship to that echolocation see we do this all the time and so look at your own experience very sensitively very openly and you'll notice that we make brief open contact with reality just enough to function just enough to walk across the street just enough to pick up the phone <laughs> and then in a lightning fast way we contract and what are we contracting onto nothing emptiness just like in the dream that's what creates the sense of the dreamer in the dream a sense of contraction that's how how rapidly it takes place. You're referencing, contracting the experience back onto seeming headquarters, back onto something, the contraction of which creates the illusion that there is something. Let me say that again. You're actually contracting onto nothing, no thing, emptiness. It's the contraction itself that creates the illusion that there is a self. Therefore, Going all the way to the end, self equals contraction. And so the reason I mentioned this is you can experience all this. This is not theory. You can experience this in your meditation. You can experience this in your dream yoga. And then guess what you do? You then transition your wild habituation, not to openness, but to contraction. That's what meditation is, habituation to openness. You, we we are so, our sense of identity is brought about by this extreme habituation to contraction. We're so contracted, we don't even know how contracted we are (laughs) until we have these ecstatic moments of opening. It's like a, it's like a cramp you never knew you had, right? You don't, you don't realize how cramped you are until the cramp is finally released. And then there's this extraordinary moment of ecstasy, what we call the enlightened state or whatever. That is actually the ecstasy is directly proportional to the preceding agony, right? It's only because we're so contracted that the openness feels so blissful. So I'm throwing so many different noodles here. It's only because these questions are so great, Roger. And so I'll pause for a moment to make sure I'm not having too much roadkill here, because I, I do want to make this practical for people. That if you pay, if you slow down, really pay attention to your experience through your dreams or through your mind and meditation during the day, I invite you to notice, to look, how we're always referring experience back to self. We're always contracting back to self. The very gesture of which creates the illusion that there is a self, there isn't. And so this ties in, hopefully, with a little doctrinal footing for what this previous contemplation with the dream thing tried to point out. But again, I want to pause to make sure I'm, I'm throwing some noodles that are actually sticking here. <laughs> this stuff gets so deep. I mean, we're talking about the enlightened state. We're talking about non-duality. We're talking about emptiness. These are among the most subtle, nuanced, difficult topics in the whole psychospiritual business. And therefore, I just want to pause and make sure we're doing okay. <laughs> well,
1: well, you're also talking about identity, which is one of the fundamental questions of. And there are some spiritual practices, such as Ramana Maharshi's, which centre on the just repeating the question, "Who am I?" or "What am I?", which can take us very deep. But and I'd like to try to complement what you were saying about identity because you talked about. Talked about contracting and not finding something there and talked about ego and the way so much of our worldview comes from an egocentric perspective. And I just want to add that when we look very closely, that ego is one of the, and self are two of the most overused words in the English language. And we look very closely what we take to be our self-sense is composed of separate mental elements. We have a self-concept, an idea about who or what we are. We have a self-image, literally an image. We have a self-narrative, a story about who and what we are. All these these elements, mental elements, and the very terms pointed us to something very profound, what we take to be ourselves is a self-image. Exactly. It's a self-concept. Yeah. <laughs> it's a self-sense or a self-story. It's just a story, a narrative, a concept, an image. What is it that is
2: behind that yes. to which these refer? Beautiful. Oh, Roger, again, again, just fantastic. Yeah, so what is behind it all is, is awareness not even consciousness. Again, because we're talking so subtly here, we, we do have to be a bit nuanced. In, in the, the Buddhist way of talking about these terms, consciousness is a, is a slight pejorative. It has slight negative connotations because consciousness always denotes consciousness of, your are conscious of something. So what the, the wisdom traditions talk about is the transformation of consciousness into wisdom, where then what happens here, and this is exactly what the dream yoga investigation leads you to, is this very subtle, this, this is such a subtle change, but has colossal implications. What these contemplations lead you to is not awareness of, which is still dualistic, but awareness as. Let me say that again. Not awareness of, but awareness as. So what's behind it all, the only thing there ever is, is awareness. Yes, the Hindus talk about consciousness. You can talk about pristine consciousness. It's like just difference in languaging. Or spirit. Or spirit, exactly. So the only thing there ever really is, is awareness, experience. And even we can talk about like, where 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 does the illusion of matter come from there? Because now we're really going to the deep end of the pool, talking about the nature of reality. What What, what these teachings fundamentally radically contest and eventually overthrow is the materialistic, physicalistic worldview, which again is the standard view of the entire planet. The world is made of matter, it's out there, solid, lasting, independent, separate, and separate. So what we're talking about here is a radical challenge to that view because it's a highly wrong, it's an erroneous view. And if you don't think it's wrong, look at the consequences of maintaining this view. It's destroying this planet. So these teachings have again, tremendous applicability to the world situation, to to ecology, to politics, to everything that's happening. And so just to return briefly to identity and then I'll pause again, the fundamental radical transformation in identity is basically transcending, but including the self sense. And so this is also really important. The self has a place in psycho-spiritual evolution. We, We can't deny it. If we didn't have an ego sense, We wouldn't be here contemplating the nature of the ego, right? We we would be a chicken McNugget in the Serengeti. We need the sense of self. We need the healthy, wholesome fear that's connected with that. Our immune systems wouldn't work without the ability to separate between self and other. We need that, but we need to transcend while including that. So the self still can operate. The self-sense is still there. We can still communicate like we are in this particular format using this particular mode of communication, but all the while armed with these teachings realizing that's just a limited arrested form of development. It's not who we really are. And so fundamentally the identity and then a pause is, is this radical transformation from the exclusive identification with form, body, ego, to fundamentally where your body is replaced by the cosmos. And therefore then who you really are is identity transfers from this locus of identity, do you identify with the universe altogether? You know, what do they say? Tat, Tvam, Asi, thou art that. So when you have the dream, you're not perceiving the dream, you are the dream, thou art that. When you perceive this world, you're not actually perceiving this world, you are this world. That's the emptiness, that's non-duality. And again, from this perspective, lest we think this is just armchair philosophizing, From this perspective, naturally, spontaneously is born tremendous love, tremendous compassion, tremendous altruistic, spontaneous behavior, because you're reaching out to save others, to save the world, to save others, because you realize there is no other. You're basically working to save yourself. So I keep wanting to try to bring this back as best I can. There's some practical vectors so we don't just get lost. But let me pause again and see if this is um, landing. Yeah, I have a... a some things I like back on the shore a while back that I've been
0: building up here.
2: Yeah. Fire away John, please.
0: Yeah. And and I think maybe the question also can be who is experiencing, you know, instead of who I am is what, who's experiencing. Yeah. This, yeah. You can't deny experience. There it is. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I noticed some people have the problem. They say, I never dream. Well, one of my roles is I'm the CEO of I awake technologies and create brain entrainment technology. And we've noticed, Almost everyone who starts using this on a regular basis starts saying, my dream life has become so powerful. It's like, wow, you wake up, and oh, I can rest finally. I mean, this has been, there's a lot going on here. I was, you know, I was thinking about your, your pop-ups, you know, you were, you were talking about later that you can program into your dream life. And I wonder if one of those pop-ups happen, if it's possible to say, okay, this is all very nice, what's going on here. But is there anything that I'm supposed to be learning? Is there anything I'm supposed to be experiencing or releasing and kind of give those medicine questions in a lucid, open state and then pay attention to what begins to emerge or what how that changes what's going on?
2: If, if I'm understanding you, John, and, and please correct me if I'm not. So you're, you seem to be suggesting perhaps a little bit more open-ended query to this dimension of mind and then being more receptive and open to whatever rises without specific engagements with it. Is that kind of what you're asking?
0: Yeah. Well, it's a sense that you're you, you become awake in this world and the Oracle is there. If you ask the right questions. And I, and I feel like you're kind of the Oracle right now, hoping I'm asking the right questions, but can, can, when the pop-ups come, when the lucidity happens, when you begin, can you actually give those queries as if you were, you know, as I'm I speaking to you as you're you're speaking to this higher power of this world of imagery and symbolism and experience okay. and say, is there something that I should be taking away? Is there something I'm missing? Is there something I need at this stage of my my journey?
2: Oh, beautiful. In fact, I would say you can do that on on several levels. So you can grease the skids by starting to set that intentionality with questions before you ever even enter these arenas, right. So in other words, you start, you're starting, you start to saturate your mind, perfume your mind with these sorts of intentionalities. And then what happens, and this, this this can be also talked about mechanistically, the Buddhists have very sophisticated ways of talking about how this actually works. But for, for general purposes, I would say yes, that you, you start to, uh, again, I love this imaging of, of perfuming your awareness with these intentions, with these types of requests. And then when you become lucid in, let's say in, in the dream arena, then you can reinstate that. And then there's several things that can happen. Again, if I'm understanding what you're asking, one is that there can sometimes be a, a rather direct, overt type of response, a little bit like I mentioned earlier when I was asking His Holiness Karmapa in my dream, point blank, very specifically in this Q&A like we're doing here. But other times, in fact, sometimes this as compelling, if not more so, is then the type of symbolic responses that one gets, that, that the world really on a very deep level. It's like Milarepa saying, like, phenomena is all the book one needs. Because we are in, in a dream reality now, once we start to sensitize ourselves to this kind of twilight language, the secret type of communication, wireless communication, so to speak, that takes place when we become open like this, we start to realize through things like auspicious coincidence and synchronicities and all kinds of magical—the better words—tendril yeah. ten- uh, that then again starts to communicate almost in this kind of auto-symbolic way, this dream-imaging way. And so often, what I do, John, is sometimes I will um, actually back away a little bit. I'll, I'll I'll create a sense of you know lucidity is partly created by perspective. So if we return just ever so briefly using lucidity principle. When you're lost in a non-lucid dream, in a certain way, it's because you're too close to the dream. There's no perspective. You're, You're so immersed in the dream, you think it's real. It's a mistake. And so what defines lucidity is a sense of, in a sense, perspective, retreat. You're backing up and saying, wait a second, this is just a dream. It's still there. The dream's still there. But now you have a completely new awakened perspective. The display is still there but you're no longer lost in the display, see? And so what I do with this, and I love it because it it creates this kind of mythopoetic rendering of my reality, more right brain than left brain, is sometimes the answer is right in front of me in my world. I'm just too close to it, I don't see it. I don't have the perspective. Interesting how many insights and dreams literally throughout history come, people are wrestling with problems, the insight comes in what? A dream. But here, what I'll do is sometimes I'll step back and, and really almost look, not almost, look at my world as if this was a dream, because it is, and saying, okay, what is the symbolism of my world right now? What If, if, if this was a dream, what message would this be communicating? And then when I do this, it's like, again, phenomena is all the book one needs. It's a symbolic guru in Buddhist languaging. The world then becomes this magical living teaching. Everything becomes a teaching moment, teachable moment, because the universe is then not in a psychotic way, but the universe is then constantly sending you information, teachings, messages. If you have this lucidity perspective, you see what I'm saying? And and so I find this really quite beautiful because then what does it do? It de-reifies my reality, right? Oh, everything's not so solid and, and literal and serious. I can see things from this new lucid perspective and then derive the insights that are gleaned from that perspective. So is that kind of what you're asking?
0: Yeah, well, that was very helpful, yeah. And visually, when I'm in this kind of conversation, the borders become much softer. Yes. You know, it just starts... Just I'm not, I'm not sure if that's describing it right, but that certainly has been happening while you've been speaking. Well, that's you know, conversation. That,
2: John Edison. Very interesting things to say because when let me just give you one example. When one has in the Tibetan world, and, and Roger knows this, and some analogues to the Shakti tradition in Hinduism. But when one has in the Buddhist world what's called a pointing out transmission, which is when a teacher, and again, I'm I'm not of this caliber, I'm not even close, I'm not a guru. I'm a pundit, but when you go to these events, it's very interesting. And and the teacher through particular ritual empowerments and ceremonies will actually point out the nature of reality. They actually point out emptiness. And what's very interesting, it's it's quite comical. I've been to dozens of these over the years through many, many masters. And it's it's kind of humorous because often people come out from these experiences and they whisper to each other, like, did you get it? Did you get it? You know, because like, you know, we're not quite sure we got it. Well, one way... John, that you can really realize you got it is, in fact, the world appears porous, dreamlike, permeable. Some, It's a little bit more shifty out there. It's not quite as solid as it was a little while ago. Things are appearing a little bit less out there, a little bit like whatever. That's when you know you're getting a glimpse because your world is, is slightly de See? And so then, once we're sensitized to this, we realize again the degrees of reification—that's real nightmare principle. The degrees of de-reification, in other words, waking up. All of which, really, this is the genius of these nocturnal meditations, can be studied every single night when we fall asleep. So <laughs> there <laughs> <Beautiful>. you go,
1: <laughs> Andrew. You've been there's a theme to a couple of the conversations you've you've just had. One was you pointed to the plasticity of what we take to be ourselves, or the plasticity of identity, Beautiful. and pointed out that actually the self-sense, what we take to be ourselves, is a construction. Yep, it is not a given. It is something that we construct, and the range of what we construct is so far beyond what we usually take to be possible or to be ourselves that, tra- that it can embrace the entire cosmos, the manifest realms, the unmanifest, all reality, manifest and unmanifest. I mean, there is, seems to be no limit to our identity or who we truly are.
2: Oh, Roger, you, you, you have the most incredible capacity to just get to the heart essence. To, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I... I
1: no, please go. Please yeah, me. I mean, I, yes, I'm, I have no, but
2: Well, what I wanted to say here is, is we, we, we are each a creative genius at levels we don't even... We, we have no idea. Each one of us is a creative genius. And at unconscious levels, we create world systems. And this, again, this is what you can see in the double delusion of the nighttime dream. You are the creator of that reality. Here, a little bit more interesting, we can maybe talk about this later. We are co-creators. In other words, and not in a solipsistic way, in a new age way, we don't create this reality. We paint it. We project it. We co-create it. So things get even more interesting in the so-called waking dream. But the point is, it's the great gift of, of working with your mind in these capacities is you realize I am a creative genius, I create this world in my image and don't even know it. I create, again, idem, over and over and over. This is not frozen. This is the plasticity part. Moment to moment to moment in an atomistic way, I create, I co-create my sense of self, my sense of other, and then either the suffering or liberation that ensues with that type of creation. So therefore, talk about practicalities. You want to blame someone for your suffering or your happiness? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. You are responsible for your suffering and your happiness. And some people, especially in the West, don't want to feel so empowered. They don't want to feel that responsible. But if you really look at the nature of things, we have these are incredibly empowering teachings. They, they allow us to, to bring back the power that we unwittingly imbue. So this is worth a brief interjection. We are completely unaware of how we are completely always giving away our power to others, to the world. Every time we reify something out there, we are giving away our power to that phenomenal display. And then guess what happens? Like a boomerang, we suffer in direct proportion when that power then comes back to hit us on the back of the head. When we then think we're victims of the world, we're not victims of the world. We're victims of the way we project and paint and impute onto that world. And so what we're talking about here in a kind of political jargon way is a peaceful transfer of power back to its rightful source. These are tremendously empowering teachings. And so in exactly, and I loved your use of this term because I play with this as well, this kind of my languaging, this ontic plasticity. That the world, it's not just the brain neuroplasticity. Everything is plastic. It's another way to talk about emptiness, Ont- ontic plasticity. And th- we can see this, you can see this in the course of one meditation session. So let me give you an example. So sometimes, you know, I, I, I notice this all the time. I'll, I'll enter a meditation session, especially at the end of the day. I've had a long, busy, speedy day. I'm pretty contracted. I'm pretty speedy. Well, guess what? The world responds in kind. The world is hard because I am. So I sit in my meditation. My mind is racing. You know, it's like I'm all stressed out. It's like, aye, I, I, And I sit down. I unwind. I unwind. I relax. Guess what? I open, open, open. My identity starts to expand. Like, I love this image of a whirlpool. The sense of identity is just a self-referential spinning whirlpool. And then slowly, I start to relax, open, meditation, habituation to openness. My sense of identity expands. It opens. I literally start to decentralize. Initially, when this happened to me, Roger, and I had experiences of this ontic plasticity, in other words, discovering the empty nature of myself, I started to panic. First time I happened, spontaneous opening. I didn't understand what was happening. I thought it was dying. I thought it was losing my mind. And the immediate response to that was what? Tremendous contraction and the fear that ensues upon that, that reinstated my sense of self. I mean, talk about revelatory. So I open, the whirlpool relaxes, my sense of identity dissolves. And in the course of one meditation session, I will go from this reified Andrew, this whatever this blip is. (laughs) I will dissolve at the end of this period into the cosmos where I I no longer exist in this way. My identity has completely, talk about peaceful transfer of power. My identity is completely opened, expanded, where my body is replaced with the universe, and I actually become the cosmos. And, and I'm not special. Good Lord. You just have to work with your mind and heart. This is actually more available than you can imagine, it's more immediate than you could possibly imagine. And so I, I want to um, just emphasize this that we have just exactly like you're saying. Moment to moment, in a chameleon-like fashion, we manifest, our spectrum of identity changes depending on the circumstances, depending on our patterns, volitionally or otherwise. And so therefore, again, that wonderful maxim, this is a dream, I am free, I can change. I don't have to be stuck in this particular suit. I don't have to be locked into this particular dimension of being. I can expand and open to eventually encompass everything. And so none of this stuff is philosophical. It's all completely born from direct experience that just comes from being willing to um, look at your own mind and heart and discover these truths for yourself. There's nothing theoretical here.
0: I can't wait to go to sleep tonight.
2: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Isn't it true? Yeah.
0: Oh. Seriously, seriously.
2: No, I, it's so true, John. I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Every single <laughs> night when I go to sleep, with rare exception, it's like, okay, what am I going to discover tonight? What, you know, what, what is the universe going to teach me tonight? And yes, sometimes I have very specific criteria practices I want to do for sure. Sometimes I enter the curricula, but I would say 50% of the time, it's more of this, just this quality of wonder, hope, openness. It's like, okay, what, what, what magic will I discover tonight? And it never ceases to amaze me. All the things that are available to us. Once we start to open and believe and, and make our, make avail, make ourselves available to these experiences. So Fantastic.
1: Beautiful, and, and I want to just draw out some of the implications of what you're what you're saying. And and you, one is you you mentioned that one of the great discoveries, both of of working with dream dream yoga, but also in in exploring very deeply the nature of our experience, is the recognition to which we are creators rather than simply victims of our experience. And you mentioned that the word responsibility, And I want to decontaminate that because unfortunately, in our culture, responsibility is associated with guilt. You are responsible. And in much the way I def- would define responsibility, of course, there's a common breaking out of the word into responsibility. But there's also the way I just define responsibility, responsibility is responsibility is our recognition that we play a creative role in our, in our experience. So that has extraordinary, there are extraordinary liberating, awakening, enlightening implications in what you're saying. One is that we are not simply victims of our experience. We are co-creators of it. But another one is when we look very deeply at our experience, we discover exactly what you're saying, that it's not as concrete or rigid or... Clear or it's—it's it's much more subtle than—and and many things. But one of them is that it is transconceptual, meaning it doesn't fit into our concept. It's not just our concept it's something far more profound than we can wrap our concepts around. And there's a beautiful thing by the Indian philosopher Radhakrishnan, the great, who was actually president of India at one stage. And he said, reality overflows our miserable concepts. And, and the implication that I take from that is, once you realize that what we actually respond to Is not experience, but our concepts about experience. Then you suddenly realize that wow, if I can stay really in touch with my experience, rather than just being lost in my ideas about it, I'm actually have actually much more freedom and a much less the effect of and run by and dictated to experience or reality. That's liberating.
2: I, I, i'm not I, i'm not sure i can even add anything to that roger I, it's just a hey, ho. that's just spot on and and yeah i mean you know the, as you know in, in in the neurosciences these days i mean huxley talked about it right starting with the, the brain as this kind of reducing valve and what's called a filtering model that that basically largely for developmental reasons by the way as you well know we sh- we shrink wrap the world through the Through the highly filtering process of our concepts, all in the service of ego, we just filter out aspects of reality that don't maintain our particular worldviews, that don't sustain us, that don't feed us at these particular developmental levels. And so that once we start to open our minds, we start to realize again, transcend, but include that concepts, actually, they do have a place. We can use our concepts in a very healthy way to accomplish things. And we have science and technology and the arts and whatnot to demonstrate that. But mostly what happens is you're alluding to is, is these concepts, we end up living in a map instead of the territory. Then we wonder why something's missing. And so as we start to work with the mind in meditation, we start to realize the extraordinary power of the conceptual agendas, how they shrink wrap, limit us, And then as we start to open, release, de-reify those, the whirlpool starts to relax back into the stream of reality. Then we just avail ourselves to the the utter magic wonder mystery of what's actually out there. And so again, to me, it's like both with ego, with form, with concepts, everybody's welcome at this table. All these particular dimensions have their place, but the issue is to find that place and keep it there. Because otherwise we become dominated by form, materialism. We become dominated by that rested form of development called ego. We become dominated by our concepts. And so if we understand them, they, we can appreciate them for what they are, release them when they're no longer necessary, um, and then just continue to avail ourselves of the wonder of what's beyond just the shrink wrap approach to everything that we have. And we do it largely because of fear. I mean, you know, it, this, the, the notion of fear is super important. We, maybe we can talk about this further when we return and talk about the whole death and dying thing because that's also that narrative sublimating so much of what we were talking about here. Like, for instance, if this is such a great, uh, wondrous way to look at the world, it's, it's actually the natural way. Well, why don't we see it that way? Why don't we see it? Well, one fundamental reason is fear. There's no room for personal identity here. Ego just can't grasp, grok something that is so transcendent. And so it contracts really out of the majesty of the splendor. It's too much for these arrested forms of developments. And therefore we contract out of that. And the the immediate response to that, the affective expression of that is one of fear. And so then extraordinarily practical, whether we know it or not in stage four, dream yoga is all about working with fear. Whether we know it or not, the, the entirety, unless we're on a, a meditative path of awakening, the entirety of our lives is, and we can really unpack this when we talk later about death and dying, the entirety of our lives is basically a very sophisticated avoidance strategy based on fear, fear of reality, fear of truth, where there's no room for this thing called ego. And so therefore, talk about practical take a look below the hood and everything we do is based on fear in relative reality. Fear is the affective expression of ignorance. And so when we understand this, we start to realize which is one reason why so many people are not that deeply interested in this sort of thing, because on a very real level, they they fundamentally have to work with one of the principal deterrents here, which is this primordial fabric of fear. But that's such a big topic, Roger, that maybe, maybe we can hold that until another time because I want to do justice to that one and maybe even guide listeners through some exercises and practices about fear and anxiety. Because again, everything that I do and I know your work is the same is practical. How can we use this stuff? How can we be better human beings? How can we be more loving and compassionate? How can we be more sensitive to what's happening to the world? It all circumambulates these topics because really my, my riff these days, Roger, is if what we're doing here isn't of benefit to the world, it's irrelevant. If we're sitting here, just basically trying to talk about highfalutin, this is philosophy on the pejorative sense, it, it's, it's utterly completely irrelevant. And in our philosophies will go as extinct as the human species, which is where we're heading. And I, so I don't wanna to get too gloom and doom here, but my thing these days more is, is, is enlightened activism. Like, what are we really doing here? If we can't really help the world, we might want to take a very close look. Is this just spiritual bypassing? Are we just trying to make, make ourselves more comfortable with spiritual ideals? Hey, we need to look at this. And Maybe I'm speaking for myself.
1: No, I think you're speaking for both John and I, and you're speaking to the reason we did this podcast. Absolutely. To bring these dimensions together. John gave an invitation, which I jumped at to his... You no, know, we could do something which brings people like you, Andrew, here who have really profound, important ideas with far-reaching implications, and and invite them to give put those ideas out. So, this is right on.
0: Yeah, and this is exactly what we hoped it would be. Roger, you, you, and Andrew, really, thank you. It's been it's been something to be
1: here. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, is there. this has been so rich and so profound and vast and, and, and wonderful. Is there anything you'd like to say uh, before we complete? No, just,
2: just a profound sense of appreciation for you both. I mean, uh, John, I don't really know you all that well, but if you're hanging with my friend Roger, you got to be okay. You know, he's, it, Roger's one of the great, great likes in my life and a total delight to get to know him. And so really nothing more than it's just a tremendous sense of gratitude and appreciation for being in your company for allowing us the opportunity to talk about what really matters, you know, like what, let's get down to things here, like what, what really counts, what really matters. And so the opportunity to engage in this conversation with you all, to me, it is kind of what makes life worth living. And so I very much appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah.
1: And we appreciate it too. And it's been such a gift. And and if I were to try to summarize the unsummarizable, I would say I'm reminded of of the mantra from Zen, Gate gate para parasam gate bodhiswaha beyond even the concept of beyond wow <laughs> and that's what this conversation has been and you've also been bringing it back to very practical implications even to the fact that although they're not immediately obvious this has very real implication for the global tragedy we are creating because as this understanding comes on board, so many of the usual egocentric and ethnocentric motives fall away. And one realizes there are more important things in life than egocentricity in my country. And we are, we have to live for the welfare and awakening of all. And that's what this conversation is. You've done that in this conversation, Andrew. So and in your life and your work and your books uh, we spoke particularly to dream yoga and dreams of life, but in the next conversation, we'll also deal with your book, preparing to die, and your book about the challenges, the path, the power, and the pain. You've, your life's work is a gift to us all, Andrew. Thank you so much. So much, everybody.
2: Really, so appreciate it, and thanks yeah, everybody.
0: Thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by IWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do from John Roger and the Deep Transformation team.